0: Today I'll be speaking with Jamie Kerchik. Jamie is a journalist and foreign correspondent, currently based in Washington. He's reported from all over the world, Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, various countries in Europe. He writes mainly now for the Daily Beast, and he's also a columnist for Tablet. And his first book, coming out from Yale University Press, I believe next March, 2017, is entitled The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. His writing has appeared everywhere, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and he he spent a lot of time thinking about the election and its implications for U.S. foreign policy, the kinds of trends and, and concerns that brought us here, and the trends and concerns that will likely endure. I wanted to talk to him, and I'm very glad I got him on the podcast. And we dive back into politics here, talking about the election and the coming Trump presidency, mostly with a focus on the implications for foreign policy. So if you are concerned about the world and what happens to it on our watch, well, then you might find something useful here. And now I give you Jamie Kerchick. I'm here with Jamie Kirchick. Jamie, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Sam.
0: Tell our listeners how you describe yourself at this moment and what, what you mostly focus on.
1: Uh, so I'm a, I'm a journalist based in Washington. I focus mostly, I'd say, on foreign affairs, Europe, where I used to live, working for Radio Free Europe for for a couple of years. Um, but I write about increasingly d- domestic American politics. I was sort of pulled into it by this election. Um, I write for the Daily Beast primarily, but also for Tablet, which is a a Jewish-themed website, and lots of other publications. I've been
0: noticing you. I I forget how I first noticed you. I think it might have been on Twitter, which is somewhat ironic because the influence of social media on our thinking at Mm. this moment is so depressing, and I think we'll probably talk about it, but I I think I, I discovered you that way, and I've actually discovered... A few podcast guests that way. So it's useful for something. <laughs> and I've, I've noticed that you and I are worried about many of the same things. And obviously, we, we share these worries with, with many people. So there's a lot to get into. It seems to me that we are engaged in a war of ideas now that's not really between the left and the right so much as it's between liberals and illiberals, because we're finding illiberals on both the left and the right. And people are falling into identity politics and conspiracy thinking, and they're producing fake news stories and standing in opposition to free speech. These trends are just, I mean, they're they're antithetical to getting a grasp on reality and, and reasoning honestly about it. And yet this problem does cut across political lines. We might argue that any one of these things might be worse on the left or the right at this moment. But it's definitely, it's hard to align politically in a way that is easily summarized on many points of real significance. And all of this seems to have crystallized with the election. But there are so many topics here, which, which I've heard you speak about and I've seen you write about, which are related. So just there's kind of a through line here where you can talk about the, the, the failures of the Obama administration. At the level of foreign policy. So, you know, the red line in Syria, for instance, and subsequent Russian involvement there, and then the migrant crisis to Europe, which is leading to the possible dissolution of the EU and the rise of, of nativism everywhere. And then, the, the, and the, this is giving us this, this spirit of, of anti globalism and a, a fundamental distrust of the media and even a disdain for the very concept of a fact, right? So, you and, and again, yep. again, this all seems to have been brought to a kind of a crystalline focus with Donald Trump. So to just you know I've kind of put out a the, the terrain there you, to tell me
1: how the things look for you at this moment. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think you're right. and i I agree that we're in new political terrain where someone like myself, who really I consider myself center right, I work for a conservative think tank. Um, I usually vote Republican. But I found myself so viscerally opposed to Trump, almost even more, you know, radically anti-Trump than a lot of my left-wing friends. Um, and having lived in Europe, I you see this sort of um, political realignment of the extremes coming together on the far left and far right. So, you know, there's this Syriza government in Greece, which is sort of neo-communist. And, you know, they've been praised— by Hungarian fascists that I've interviewed, Hmm. um, because they're all sort of anti-liberal, illiberal, um, in the classic sense of the word. Um, And during the campaign, I wrote an article for the Daily Beast that got a lot of angry responses where I really called out some of the lefties for Trump. you know, and one of whom I just said out loud was our our very good mutual friend Glenn Greenwald, whose mm-hmm. whose who's real, you know, whose entire approach to the election was basically it could be summed up as, well, Hillary Clinton is a lying neocon, neoliberal, corporate warmonger, shill. And how dare you accuse me of passively aggressively supporting Donald Trump? And there were many people I found on the left who, you know, they they would never come out explicitly and say it because obviously. You know, you wouldn't want to ally yourself with this guy who's such a bore and playing all these kind of racist dog whistles. But um, I think Trump actually had a lot in common with sort of the the far left, Mm. Um, certainly in terms of his worldview and his view of American power and his belief that America should just kind of mind its own business and, you know, stay stay at home. Yeah, Um, the kind of anti-imperialist left, if you will. Um, but yeah, we're in a really dark time, um, and I. You also brought up this issue of, you know, how much of what we're going through now is it a response to Obama? And I do think that there's an element of this, and we can talk more about sort of the alt right. And there seems there seems to be a lot of self flagellation now from liberals, um, in in which. Um, they're sort of accusing themselves of not being, you know, in touch with middle America and the media was, you know, sort of navel gazing. And we, we talk in this bubble, you know, SNL had a skit about the bubble last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, like I've written a lot about political correctness and free speech, and I am the first person to criticize the left for this yet as as strongly as I loathe the kind of social justice warrior left, and when President Obama refuses to say Islamic terrorism, none of these things, in my mind, justify a vote for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like a lot of people who might not be as nuanced as, you know, Sam Harris and Jamie Kerchick, they basically threw up their arms and they said, you know what, I can't stand this anymore. I'm being told that there's 69 different genders. Um, the president won't talk about Islamic extremism. I'm just going to vote for this Trump guy because he tells it like it is. And I get that. I just think it was the wrong choice.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's interesting because I'm finding, I, you know, I, as you probably know on my podcast, also on my blog, I've been maybe not as vociferous as you you may set the standard there but i i i've been probably as vociferous as anyone else i could name in my repudiation of trump and it really gone on ad nauseum and it's interesting i noticed that post election there's this kind of the, the the wind has gone out of my sails to a significant degree because i basically said everything i had to say and now he's elected and there's a sense I have that the moment to do anything has really passed. And, you know, this is politically, this may in fact not be true, but it's not just me. I think I feel like many people are sort of moving on to just accepting that we're going to have four very interesting and perhaps very depressing years of political incompetence. And I think the worst things about Trump, I mean, the, the things I fear most about him are not. What liberals and what the the mainstream media is tending to focus on. I mean, I, obviously, the we can debate whether you know the dog whistles were in fact dog whistles. I think we we both bemoan the eruption of misogyny and anti semitism and racism. We've seen that has has been a response to Trump and part of his support. But I think it is at least reasonable to expect that that is a tiny fraction of of the people who support him and the scariest thing is just we now have elected somebody who is you know as i've said before just clearly a con man and a pathologically selfish and petty and just unenlightened person and we we are now giving him more responsibility than any person has had in human history and so that's so it's incompetence and dogmatism and you know this kind of the petty tyranny of of a of a psychologically not entirely healthy person that i worry about more than the prospect that he is a deeply racist or you know otherwise ideological person and so maybe maybe react to that yeah. and also just the the concept of how normalizing this is a is almost irresistible, even for critics of Trump, because it's just that you just can't. What what, are we just going to complain endlessly for four years now? Is that our new job?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you, I, um, I feel sort of exasperated, exhausted. I think from about February or March until, you know, two weeks ago when the election was held, I really didn't write about anything other than Trump. And I have to understand, I usually don't write that much about domestic politics. I'm usually writing about foreign policy. I just got so sort of obsessed with doing what I could to kind of, you know, warn people and convince them not to support this man. And now there's sort of a feeling like, wow, like it didn't even have an effect. Um, And what does it say about our country that however many tens of millions of people would fall for, as you said, an obvious con? Um and I actually wanted to ask you later. I mean, I, to me it almost one, one article I wrote about Trump was that he most reminded me of L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And he seemed he he almost seems like a cult leader. And that his his pull over his supporters is very similar. I mean, when 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 he got up and said, you know, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would still support me, he's pro- he's right. And and that doesn't that that's not the kind of language of a of a democratic political leader it's the le, it's the it's the language of a of a dictator or sort of you know david koresh or jim jones mm. and as someone as someone who studies faith and religion i'd be curious to know your views on that but just um one last thing i mean i i agree that i'm much less worried about the implications and the consequences domestically i think a lot of people on the left are getting a little hysterical about america turning into nazi germany overnight what I'm much more concerned about, and this stems from my experience having lived and worked in Central and Eastern Europe, is really the effect that he will have on the world, in um, particularly that part of the world. I think the biggest story of this election that still has not been fully explained is Russia and their involvement mm-hmm. and their involvement in this election. I mean, they the the tactics that they used in hacking the DNC and John Podesta and then using WikiLeaks as a front, these are the sorts of tactics that, you know, I witnessed as a reporter in Kyrgyzstan, okay, which is like a Soviet backwater. It's the kind of stuff that the Russians would do in, you know, like the third world countries that they once ruled. To see them actually use these kinds of tactics in the world's, you know, greatest democracy, so-called, and to basically get away with mm-hmm. it is really appalling. And I, th- and I still don't think that we fully wrapped our our heads around this i think part of the reason might be because a lot of the journalists on the left who sort of you know wrote about this story were kind of like you know johnny come lately cold warriors it's like oh wow all, all of a sudden like you know josh marshall cares about russia all of a sudden it's like it would have been nice if you were there you know for the past eight years during the reset you know um president obama's disastrous policy towards russia or you know when when you were laughing at Mitt romney for saying that russia was our greatest you know global security threat which i think is evidently true now mm. um and so this this whole angle the, the 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 russian angle their involvement in our election also their involvement in a lot of this kind of fake news that you're hearing a lot about yeah um and sort of just kind of i mean there, what, there's there's a friend of mine peter Pomerantz, who wrote an excellent book about russia it's called nothing is true and everything is possible and it's about his years living as a tv producer in sort of putin's russia and it's a brilliant book about sort of the surreal postmodernist Russian um, world where there's, you know, fake political parties and it's called managed democracy. And as the title suggests, nothing is true and everything is possible. And I never thought that his book, which just came out a couple of years ago, would so accurately describe the kind of postmodern world that we're entering now in the United States, where basically a candidate can get up, lie through his teeth, left and right. And people just don't, you know, the you and me get really angry and we fume and scream and the media goes crazy, but a lot of people don't care.
0: That's actually been the scariest aspect of this election for me, because you can, you know, intelligent people can disagree about what we should do about trade, say, or immigration right. or Islamism or, I mean, all of these topics have room for diversity of opinion. I mean, not, not every relevant topic does, I think, if you're dismissing climate science at the moment. You you, you probably don't deserve a seat at the table for debate, but we could disagree about how bad it is or what we should do about it or what the likely implications are. But this kind of post-fact moment where people no longer care what the truth is, and there's a kind of nihilistic delight in just setting the universe of information on fire, right I mean this this fake news orgy is just unbelievable, so I think you have seen both of these articles or you know about both of these stories. A couple of days ago, there was an article in The Washington Post about these two guys yep. in California who have made up Liberty writers news is their website, and they've got millions of readers and they're making probably some hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just creating. Fake news stories, which which have been lapped up by Trump supporters, and they were part of this this Facebook scandal that may in fact have influenced the election. Just where Facebook became an organ of disinformation, publishing these stories, and as you say, so there's there's this now cottage industry sponsored or at least inspired by Russia, right? And in, in some Eastern European countries, just creating fake news websites that have significant currency in the u.s on on, again this is on the this happens on the left and the right but now i'm talking about right wing versions of it but this other story which was just completely insane which i just heard about yesterday which i think is going by the name of pizzagate oh yes the story about this pizza parlor in dc that was alleged to be running a a child sex trafficking ring run by hillary clinton and john podesta Right, and this is—I mean—apparently believed by people. Right, so the 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 owners of this this restaurant are getting death threats by the hundreds, and you know their their lives are completely upended. They've got photos of their kids online being circulated on crazy websites. It's pure insanity, and should be recognizably insane to anyone who cares about what's happening in the world. But apparently, it's it's not. And so, I mean, this breakdown of valid forms of information and is a kind of moral equivalence where you, you, any error found in the New York Times is considered to be on par with a fake news website that is just manufacturing propaganda out of whole cloth. It's terrifying. Let's focus on that piece a little bit and on Russia's putative involvement here because whenever I have circulated stories about Russia hacking the election, I have gotten back, you know, by the dozens and more claims from Trump supporters that all of that's made up, that that, that, that there is, there's no evidence that Russia has been involved in anything. Have you, have you seen that? And what's your evidence? Yeah, I mean,
1: there's this, there's there's this sort of, you know, you're being a McCarthyite. They, they they love to throw that word around. I mean, look, there's two issues here. There's the, um, I'm, I'm not alleging hacking of the ballots or the, you know, election system. In fact, it was Donald Trump who, it was Donald Trump who was the one who was going on and on about the rigged. Election system I'm not alleging that hmm. um, what we do know is that Russian hackers basically committed cyber Watergate at the DNC and then they released and then they used you know WikiLeaks, which is their front and you know that that's a whole I can explain that to people but that's pretty much accepted that WikiLeaks is a Russian intelligence front let me just
0: focus on that claim for a second now do you Think that WikiLeaks has always been, or it's just simply been co-opted no. recently? I think
1: they've been yeah, I think they've been co-opted. And I think it's the same as Edward Snowden. I think, you know, people have ideas. Julian Assange really does um, he I would say he's he's a radical transparency activist, although it's very selective, of course. You don't see him publishing documents from Russia or China. What I think he is, is he's a, he's a, he's a, just your typical sort of far-left, anti-American mm. Australian, of which there's a long pedigree. And, you know, the Russians were very smart, and they were able to basically co-opt him. He had a show on RT, which is the Russian uh, propaganda channel. Um, and so they're basically being used now as a front for Russian intelligence. And they have been for quite a while. Um, and so what did they do? They released these emails right on the eve of the Democratic National Convention that were designed to... Um, anger the Bernie supporters, the Bernie Sanders supporters, um, to get them all riled up, um, and to hate Hillary Clinton. And that was done for obvious reasons. And you know what, that might have, that might've been enough to swing the election, right? Mm. To keep the Bernie supporters home on election day. So we know they did that. We know they hacked the Podesta emails. These are not, you know, made up. These are, these are, these this, this, this is true. Um, as with regard to the fake news. This is a real. I mean, I don't. I don't know how we deal with something like this. This is basically, you know, this is um, Russia trying to take advantage of our freedoms, which is freedom of speech, and basically sneak inside and take advantage of it and corrupt it. And you know, we 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 can't, you know, censor these things. We can't, um, you know, arrest people for writing fake news stories. What we need is just some sort of. I mean, media literacy among our population. I mean, we need people to be, people need to understand that, you know, when they read something that's in the New York Times or the Washington Post, there's a much better chance it'll be true than if it comes from liter- libertywritersnews.com. And it's just astounding to me that we have a society where there are so many people who don't accept the, the distinction.
0: Yeah, well, unfortunately, every case of error or bias on the part of a institution like the New York Times does so much damage to their right. credibility. And I mean, obviously there are people who are poised never to accept anything they say ever again. So those those people may be irreclaimable, but still it's just to to notice, I mean, because we have people in you know on the op-ed page of the new york times someone like nick kristoff right who who, who right. will reliably make the most charitable thing is to say an error of judgment about something relevant to islamism say you know or right. or you know he won't recognize that hersi Ali is or should be considered a a feminist hero he will right. he will basically castigate her as a bigot right and yep. the, and as you probably know the southern poverty law center just did this yes. They put together a list of quote anti-Muslim extremists, and Ayon and Majid Nawaz are both on it. The irony here is is really painful because if ever we needed a a clean and truly wise institution to combat right-wing extremism and racism in the U.S., right, we needed it now, post election. Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, the Southern Poverty Law Center is is irredeemable on the basis of this uh, the magnitude of this error and the fact that they have just doubled down on it and defended it.
1: Yeah, I see them being I see them being quoted a lot over the past couple of weeks and sort of the spike in hate crimes after Trump's election. and it really angers me for precisely the reason you say because they are they totally have a, a political agenda. They slandered Majid and Ion Hersiali who are heroes of liberalism, frankly. Um and so yeah, they've totally lost credibility, and I think it's 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 a shame when when institutions that should, you know, play that role, that constructive sort of arbiter role, get tainted in that way. Yeah, by their own doing, by their own yeah. doing, it's completely self-inflicted. But the problem
0: is that you know it does come down on some basic level to intellectual honesty and a commitment to. Correcting errors. I mean, it's you know, if you made a mistake, right? Well, then, as long as your overriding goal is to correct your mistake as soon as it comes to light, right, and and not be wrong any longer than you need to be, then basically everyone can forgive that. I mean, that's what that's what every institution needs. That's what we need personally, and that's what a nonprofit like the Southern Poverty Law Center needs. And It would have been totally possible, I guess it's still possible for them to correct this error, and it's possible for someone like Nick Kristof to realize, oh, you know, I I kind of lost the plot here. I've been defending Islamists in many respects and castigating a truly courageous and victimized person. It would be possible to correct this error and, and issue the appropriate mea culpa, and the institution would be intact. But either there's just People have too much going on, and they just can't—they they can't take the time to figure out how they got things wrong, or they just there's this all too human tendency to double down in the face of criticism, and it's it's really damaging, and it, it allows people to now going forward no longer distinguish between real journalistic enterprises that are trying to get the facts straight most of the time, and these confections of just. Teenage insanity, where I mean, literally you've got like eighteen year olds with their laptops, yeah, defining the worldview of millions of people,
1: well, yeah, and what I worry about is that Trump is so awful. He's so manifestly awful that I feel like a lot of our sort of mediating institutions um are just going to kind of uh, become less responsible. They're going to feel that they can kind of get away with more, perhaps they won't cover him. Um, they might they might cover him in a more shrill hyperbolic manner mm. because he's so he's so bad, and they'll they'll think that they can just get away with with things. There might be some you know um curtailments of facts here and there. um and I worry that sort of the the average decent you know liberal center is just getting lost in what's becoming almost a kind of weimarization of American political discourse, where you know, on the right, you have this sort of ethno-populist authoritarianism. And on the left, you know, it just seems that the Democrats, the lesson that they're taking from this election is, oh, well, we need to be even more left-wing, and we need to protest in the streets, and we need to make Keith Ellison the head of the DNC. Mm. And that's, you know, and that's going to be our our ticket forward. And it's like, well, where are the people in the middle supposed to go? Unfortunately, being in
0: the middle, I can tell you personally what the inclination is. It's to more or less change the subject and focus on other things. So I just notice how, again, this is kind of a psychological experiment being run hour by hour. Whenever I open Twitter, I see like when I see someone like, you know, David Frum or somebody take another hard whack at Trump, right? Like he'll, he'll send out an article revealing how Trump is showing that he's just going to wring out every dollar from the family business in response to this opportunity. And you've got Ivanka's jewelry company advertising the the $11,000 bracelet she was wearing in the 60 Minutes interview. And so these these things get tweeted. And, you know, prior to the election, I would have circulated that stuff, too, because, you know, anything I can do to put my shoulder to the wheel and stop this guy. Right. But now it just seems like I know what the consequences are. You know, some significant percentage of the people following me are Trump supporters, and I'm going to get just pure pain from them. and. I will, be, I will look boring and repetitive to some and just totally ineffectual and, in fact, be ineffectual to some significant percentage of the rest of the people following me. So it's sort of it's the avoidance of boredom and the, this hunger to be once again free to pay attention to legitimately interesting things. Among other, many other things, Trump is one of the most boring people on earth. Perversely, I mean, now we're we're through the looking glass, and it's hugely consequential, if not interesting, that he now has the power or is about to have the power he will have. But talk about someone who encapsulates basically the—he's like he's like an intellectual vacuum, right? I mean, there's just nothing there that that you would you would want to spend any time on. I feel myself kind of wanting to move on to other things, and more or less just wanting to hope that he's not as ignorant or as bad as he advertised himself to be. And I was just wonder if you can comment on that, that mood that is growing in me, which it feels, frankly, yeah. kind of, it worries me. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the danger is that we become apathetic, right? That we just sort of, you know, we've lost and we just sort of tend to our gardens and, um, he goes on and does you know, awful things, and there's just less people to to fight him because we we've, we've become so demoralized. Um, on the other hand, I think, like 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 you said, um, I think now that he's going to be in office, we need to perhaps you know preserve our gunpowder for the real serious fights. So you know, perhaps the Ivanka jewelry marketing mm. sc- scandal you know, maybe that's not really what we need to get all worked up about. Um, I mean, similarly, there are a lot of people talking about over the weekend how Trump, you know, was tweeting these attacks on the Hamilton cast for lecturing Mike Pence Mm. and how that coincided with the $25 million settlement that he just made in the Trump University case and how that was sort of expertly timed to distract us. You know, he could distract us with this silly scandal about Hamilton while the real story is the fact that he just settled a fraud case for twenty five million dollars, right. so I think I think we need to be, you know, vigilant in terms of where our outrage goes. yeah, um, and in terms of Trump himself and how he performs, look, no one would be happier if he becomes Harry Truman and just you know becomes this great president and surprises everyone. I really don't think that's going to happen. But if it does happen, then I'll be the first person to admit it. If that does happen, though, what I think will 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 have been lost um is this sense of sort of honesty and decency in politics i mean maybe it's been gone already but i just i feel like if if donald trump governs as some sort of like rockefeller republican moderate then like what was the entire point of that election when he got up there screaming and yelling about locking hillary in prison and you know the whole litany of things like then we've truly entered this postmodern era right where you can just get up and shout ridiculous things and just no one takes anyone seriously anymore.
0: Right, yeah, that's something I commented on a couple podcasts back, I think. After his acceptance speech, which I found alarming just in how benign it was and how antithetical it was to how he had campaigned, and I was just trying to take the position of a person who had voted for him. Right. You know, chanting lock her up, lock her up as the happy mantra of the campaign. What did it mean to that person to see Trump say nothing but good things about Hillary? And now we learn— and today
1: he said, yeah, today he said he's not going to pursue her. Right.
0: So now, so now we learn, you know, like, so like uh, who's the cuck now, right? I mean, <laughs> now we learn he's, he's not going to do any of that, right? Now, what else is he not going to do? So is there anyone who supported him rapidly who cares about the, this mismatch between who he said he was and, and what he said he was committed to? And what, in fact, appears to be true of his looming presidency is just this this lack of concern about what's real and just this this indulgence of the theater of getting people's attention. Right. It's just like it doesn't matter as long as as long as I'm up here on stage making noise. I don't even have to speak in complete sentences. And yes, I could shoot someone in Times Square and you're you're all going to stay with me because you love this shit. Right. And it's it's just. This is not something that for all her flaws and for all her deceitfulness, right, and all her guardedness with the media, this is not something that Hillary Clinton was remotely doing. It is bizarre. I mean, its it would be amazing for him to move forward and be essentially the Democrat that everyone thinks is hiding in there, at least on most issues, right. and pursue a massive infrastructure project that he manages to get through because the Republicans are now in his thrall. and then. Basically, do you know eight out of ten good things that that would be amazing, although again, I share your skepticism about whether it's possible,
1: yeah, and it seems that there's like two kinds of Trump supporters they're the ones who like fully believe and want him to carry out every kind of cockamamie promise he made, and then there are the more um cynical ones, the operators, the ones in washington d c the Newt Gingrich's, the Kellyanne Conways. Mm. And these, and these are the people, I think, who always knew that he was a bullshit artist, frankly, um, but that he obviously clearly had some amazing ability to connect with people and they were willing to kind of ride the tiger. Um, I'm not sure which is worse. You know, if you actually believe that he's going to deport 11 million people and, you know, all this nonsense or, or if you, you know, you cynically attach yourself to this because you want power. Um, I mean, they're not neither of them are very good. Mm. Um, What what I worry about is, you know, are these kind of radicalized people, if they don't get what they want in a Trump, you know, how are they going to respond? What's their what's their next move going to be? Do they become more radical right wing and go for someone, you know, some other demagogue who comes along? Or do they reconcile themselves to the reality of politics and basically agree with him that, oh, you know, the Trump's whole shtick was moving the Overton window, Mm. you know, so we could so we could get more money out of our NATO allies was, you know, the whole purpose of threatening to leave NATO was to get them to pay up. Um, and we knew that all along. I'm not,
0: I'm not sure. You might define Overton window for some listeners. I think it's a little esoteric
1: bit of internet Yeah, knowledge. I guess I'm not sure where it kind of, maybe it was Glenn Becker. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but it's basically this notion that in, in politics or in n- negotiating, you initially come out with a, an extreme position to sort of move the conversation more in your direction.
0: And it's also this notion of the window that bounds what is acceptable to talk about. Right. Right. So right. it's like now now it's acceptable to talk about deporting eleven million people, say, or
1: or a registry for Muslims or something. I mean right. we're now actually debating this. Yeah. Well
0: let's talk a little bit more about the Trump presidency before we talk about the whole world. What Are any of these appointments that he's made thus far as scary to you as they seem to be to people on the far left?
1: I mean, Bannon is bad, um, but I think, so Steve Bannon is the the former kind of, you know, overlord of Breitbart.com. But I think the way that the debate was framed was wrong and that it seemed for whatever reason that the anti-Semitism charge was the one that people seized upon. And I think that was wrong just because the evidence for it is not as strong as some of the other charges against him. I mean, the the evidence for Steve Bannon being an anti-Semite basically boils down to, you know, his ex-wife in divorce proceedings mm. said that he made some bad remarks about sending their kids to a school with too many whiny Jewish kids. Mm. And you know, he may have said that, but you know what? It's in the divorce proceeding. So that's really not the best evidence. And then there were, you know, a couple of headlines at Breitbart. One calling um, Bill Kristol a renegade Jew uh, for not supporting Trump. And then there was a really nasty article about Ann Applebaum, the Washington Post columnist, although that was published after he had joined the Trump campaign. So I think that they were wrong to seize upon the anti-Semitism charge. What I think is obvious is anyone who spends 10 minutes reading Breitbart, it is clear that this is a toxic sewer of race baiting and xenophobia and nativism. Hmm. And it's just an ugly, disgusting, conspiratorial website. And like, that's enough evidence. And so there's been this weird debate in the Jewish community where a lot of kind of right-wing Jews are defending Bannon because he loves Israel and he's such a Zionist and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, have you learned nothing from history? I mean, if the guy is attacking um you know, Mexicans and immigrants and has an entire section of the website devoted to, quote, black crime, um, what are the chances are that he's going to be good for the Jewish people? I'd say they're probably slim to none. Um, and so there's this interesting debate going on among Jews where it it, it it used to be more on the left and that sort of the far left would have its good Jews and its bad Jews, right? And the good Jews were the Glenn Greenwalds and the Noam Chomskys. And the people who, you know, were anti-zionist and criticized Israel. And now on the right, we're seeing a kind of mirror of this where the good where the good Jews to them are the ones who, you know, defend Steve Bannon and they want to basically, you know, expel all the Arabs from Israel. Um, and they're sort of and sort of Jews are now being kind of instrumentalized mm. politically by both sides. Um, and so for the far right, for the trumpkins, they're seen as, you know the Jews are the kind of the tip of the spear fighting the Muslim hordes, and that's why we like Jews and that's why we like Israel whereas you know I'm kind of an old-fashioned liberal and I like to see people as individuals and I don't see good Jews or bad Jews I see good people and bad people and so i'm I'm a little um, disturbed by the kind of debate that's that's started up around the bannon appointments Mike Flynn, who's the national security advisor, I think is troublesome for lots of reasons. Um, you know, not the least of which are his very shady connections to the Russians. He was sitting at a dinner table with Vladimir Putin last December for the 10th anniversary of RT. Mm. Um, norm, normally, you don't see former heads of American intelligence agencies um, cavorting in Moscow with, you know, KG, ex-KGB agents. Um, and there's also, he seems to have a kind of um, very simplistic view of Islam, where he he fails to, you know, make the distinction between Islamism and Islam. And I really feel like someone mm. like Mike Flynn, he makes you know, someone like your job so much harder. Mm. Because you know, you you know, you are very eloquent, obviously, about the, the 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 threat of militant Islam. And and for that you are unfairly, unfairly attacked, you know, by the Glenn Greenwalds and the Reza Aslans and all these frauds as being, you know, a Muslim, anti-Muslim bigot. And so here comes a guy who, you know probably who sounds like an anti-Muslim bigot. He doesn't seem to make the distinctions that you or I do. And it just, it makes, it makes the work mm-hmm. so much, more so much, so much harder when someone of that prominence is in a, is in a top job. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not optimistic about the appointments. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's only so many of these sort of, you know, crazy, lunatic, thuggish people around him that he has to give jobs to. I mean, they're, you know, he has to, he has to point. How do you
0: feel about Giuliani or any of the other?
1: Rudy Giuliani, like that was my kind of Republican, you know? Like I remember, you know, after 9-11 and just admiring him so much and really, you know, kind of rooting for him in 2008. um, You know, tough on terrorism, a hawk on foreign policy, socially progressive, big city mayor, my kind of guy. And then just... Watching his behavior throughout this campaign,
0: what happened to his brain? I'd actually like to see a an imaging study done of his brain because he just seems like he's become some kind of dementor. I mean, he's yes. just he has he's, he just seems psychologically unhinged.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was there at the convention when he gave that speech, and it was I I I, I it was probably one of the most memorable moments of the convention was him was him screaming about. You know, radical Islamic terrorism, and it was it was almost like orgasmic, you know the sort of shivers he was mm. getting up his spine. um, so he's been a real disappointment as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's not much hope in terms of the appointment process
0: so we'll spend a little more time on Russia and the implications of her involvement in Syria. It certainly seems that and I don't have any significant expertise here at all. I mean, just beyond just reading the newspapers but it does seem like Putin is getting apart from what it must be like to live in Russia at the moment he seems to be getting everything he wants on the world stage and he is making life incredibly difficult for us you know and for Europe even the mere existence of of the EU is put in jeopardy by what's happening in Syria and the the predictable european response so
1: yeah, um you mentioned this earlier and that's the connection between Russian involvement in Syria and the migrant crisis. I mean, and you can draw a direct line from Russia's involvement in Syria, militarily backing Assad, you know, bombing hospitals, bombing civilian centers, and the breakdown of the EU, which is the one of the paramount goals of the Russians, is to destroy the EU. And basically, you know, you've had this uh, mass migrant wave. Most of these migrants, the vast majority of them fleeing Syria, are fleeing Assad and the Russians. They're not fleeing ISIS. Mm. As bad as ISIS is, the vast majority of these people are fleeing mm. Assad. So what happens? They come into Europe um, by the, over a million people. And they're basically leading to the rise of populist politics and it's not a coincidence that these populist parties happen to also be anti-eu anti-american and pro-russian now i'm not saying that this was the 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 purpose of the russian involvement in syria the primary purpose of russian involvement in syria was to back up the assad regime which is a, a client of russia the fact that there are so many migrants you know pouring into europe and they're having this sort of destabilizing effect is, is a nice, um, you know, side effect for, for, for Putin. Um, it's not the main reason why he's doing it, but it's, he's perfectly happy to see it, mm-hmm. to see it, to see it occurring.
0: Why would Putin be so loyal to the Assad
1: regime? I mean, this goes back decades with, you know, his father, Hafez Assad was a Soviet client, um, from the 1970s really. So there's this sort of long, you know, Russian connection. There's also, they have a, their, I think it's their only, uh, military base um Mm. on the mediterranean they had they have they have a large naval base there so there's also a military strategic dimension and there's also the the principle which is that putin is deathly afraid of you know street movements leading to the overthrow of a regime and you can look back to libya and i think the reason why uh i mean it's so so in in libya um, Medvedev was president at the time that NATO engaged in its bombing campaign. And Putin got really angry that Russia didn't veto at the U.N. They didn't use their Security Council veto to block the NATO bombing of Libya. They only abstained. He was pissed that they didn't block it. And then what happened? You know, a couple months later, uh, Gaddafi was overthrown. Mm-hmm. And so Putin, I think he fears for his own skin. He fears a, a, a color revolution in the same a uh, way that it's happened in Ukraine he fears that his own people could rise up and overthrow him so he's very wedded to the principle of basically dictators staying in power and using whatever methods however bloody and 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 awful to stay in power um so there's that that's a very important principle that he wants to defend um what i'm worried about really in europe is is germany and you know Angela Merkel is basically at this point the leader of the free world. She's sort of the last one standing. Mm. Um, and there's been there's a a new political party. It's called the Alternative for Deutschland, the Alternative for Germany party. And they are a right wing populist party. They're now the third largest party in Germany. And this is the first time since the end of World War Two that a party to the right of the Christian Democrats. Um, has basically reached this level. They will certainly enter Parliament in the next elections in about a year's time. but if you know if getting Donald Trump elected was Putin's goal, although I don't actually even think he really ever thought that he would get Trump elected. I mm-hmm. think what he wanted, what the the Russian strategy behind sort of supporting Trump and promoting him in their media, I think was basically to make America look stupid and to make America look like this joke country and so he could basically you know hold up and say you know you might not like me you might not like russia but you know what look at those jokers across the ocean they're they're no better and never in his wildest dreams do i think that he ever thought trump would win so that's happened and now i think his next goal is to unseat merkel um and so we've been seeing the way that the migrant crisis has been weaponized by mm-hmm. russian propaganda they basically they're they're using this to kind of cultivate a a right wing backlash um, against Angela Merkel, um, and so that's something to keep an eye on over the next year.
0: Although, w- wouldn't you say that that backlash is understandable given yes. how she's handled the the migrant crisis?
1: Yes, and I you know I've been a I've been a strong critic of her on the migrant crisis. I think it was you know I I think she overestimated the ability of her own country and Europe to deal with this. I think. Um, You know, lots of comparisons are made between, you know, post-war Germany's absorbing, you know, 14 million ethnic Germans from Central and Eastern Europe after World War II. And so she said, you know, famously, we can do it. You know what, there's a difference between absorbing 14 million ethnic Germans into West Germany and taking, you know, a million Muslims from Syria. Let's Mm -hmm. just be honest. That said, as as much as I might criticize her for this, I mean, she is— the only leader in Europe right now, she's the only one who can stand up to Putin, who can keep Europe, you know, basically keep Europe united, in in standing up to Putin's aggression. Mm. Um, and I think now it's going to be immensely difficult when, in the United States, we now have a president who seems to be diverting from the traditional position that the United States has always maintained, as basically leader of the free world. And now we're going to be entering into this sort of, you know, uncomfortable, you know, concert with authoritarian powers. Mm. Um, And that's that's unprecedented. I mean, you know, when Europe, there's been lots of comparisons being made to, you know, the 1930s. But let's not forget the Anglo-American democracies, Britain and America, they they resisted the tide of sort of authoritarian right wing populism. Well, you know, in Britain, they've accepted Brexit and. In the United States, we've just elected Donald Trump. So the traditional polls of, you know, sort of liberal transatlantic resistance to authoritarianism are not really there anymore. What
0: do you make of the fact that the tide of public opinion really seems to have turned on on this issue where globalism is spat out as a term of abuse, really? Yeah. And really any thought that the us should project power in a benign way is ridiculed as just you know warmongering and neoconservative delusion there are many people on the left and you know apparently also on the right who seem to think that there is no role for the us to do this and we should relinquish our pretensions to empire or you know, admit that we had them and slink away duly chastised and be, you know, basically isolationist. And, and I mean, you got this, you obviously get this from Trump, but you you were getting it from Bernie Sanders and anyone who oh. supported Hillary, no matter how tepidly, got attacked as a warmonger. And amazingly, and this is when I, I could see the, the, the echo chamber effect really working on, on the Trump side, I was getting attacked in the same language by, and th- again, this is, you know, hundreds of comments on, you know, f- my Facebook page and, you know, in response to tweets, the same phrases of Hillary will start World War Three.
1: That, that line in particular is a line of Russian propaganda. It started with, like, Russian, um, you know, government-sponsored television hosts accusing Hillary Clinton of wanting to start World War Three, And mm-hmm. so to see to see Trump basically, in you know, in, in all these Twitter people, you know, just so easily spout it. I mean, it, it again shows you the power of sort of narratives to kind of permeate within democracies. And for people, I I don't think Trump or many of these people attacking you on Twitter who are accusing Hillary of wanting to start World War III. I don't even think that they're aware that they're repeating Russian propaganda. Mm-hmm. But that's where it comes from. Um, this word globalist and globalism. It's amazing how just in the past seven or eight months. This word has now become sort of part of our accepted, you know, political discourse. I think the first time I ever came across the word globalism was, you know, back in 2008. I was a reporter at the New Republic, and my first big story was was breaking the news of these racist conspiratorial newsletters that that Ron Paul, mm. the former congressman, published for about 20 years, um, and they were full of the kind of like you know John Birch Society, you know, very far right conspiratorial. You know, they're like the UN is going to come to the U.S. and take your guns away and whatnot. And the word globalist would, would come out a lot. And I remember interviewing Alex Jones, mm. um, because he was a big Ron Paul supporter. And I remember interviewing him and thinking, oh, you know, this is such a crazy guy. And you know, never, you know, it was it was a good scoop for me, but never did I actually think Ron Paul would become president. And so it's amazing now to see a bonafide conspiracy theorist someone who is openly endorsed by Alex Jones, mm. whom I saw traipsing around the Republican National Convention, is now president of the United States. It's, it's, it's that to me, more than the racism, it's the conspiracism that I find yeah. the most uh, disturbing aspect of this. As to the question of American power, I mean, I, I obviously agree with you on this. I think I would just ask these people who want us to take a more, you know, restrained role in the world, you know, at, at, at what point in human history was the world a more peaceful place than the past 70 years under American, benign American hegemony? And the same goes for Europe. You know, I have a book coming out about Europe in a couple of months, and um, I talked to a lot of Europeans and a lot of them who are Euroskeptics who want to dissolve the EU. And I just asked them simply, what's your alternative? What period in European history was more prosperous or peaceful than the basically 70 years of European integration that you've had. Mm. Why would you want to risk that? Knowing what the alternative has been, why would you want to risk that by getting rid of this institution? And I agree, the EU has lots of problems, okay? It's too bureaucratic and, you know, I could go on and on. But to but to scrap it entirely and, 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 to, and to go off in this other direction when, when we know what's happened historically, we know what's happened when Europe... has has pursued, when when all the European countries have pursued their national agendas at the expense of cooperation. We know what the world has looked like when America is not the benign superpower. Um, And I think we're seeing a microcosm of this kind of acceptance of Russia as an alternative or to a sort of a return to spheres of influence. I think we're seeing Mm. a microcosm of this in Syria where a lot of people basically say, Let's just cooperate with Assad and Putin. That, that was basically Trump's message. And that's the message of a lot of people on the right and the left, that we need to cooperate with Assad and Putin. And I think we're going to see that sort of narrative become globalized over the next couple of years. Um, and, and, and we're going to be told more and more that we need to get along, cooperate with Russia. And the same with other you know, adversarial authoritarian powers around the world. What's your view of the the
0: red line moment with Obama in Syria? What were the consequences of that? Because that really is a a perfect example of an obviously very messy situation, which, given what Obama had said, put the credibility of U.S. power, hard power, on the line. And, you know, we certainly appeared to blink. And the resulting civil war has been an objective catastrophe yet you know it, it, had we had we not blinked and had we actually gotten involved militarily in a consequential way you can imagine the, the 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 anti-war sentiment in the us would have been enormous because given afghanistan and iraq and how at best ambiguous those the results of those interventions have been you know, I'm not actually putting them on a par. I think, you know, I think Afghanistan was, was necessary and Iraq certainly wasn't. But it seems like we have a kind of new Vietnam syndrome now, where it's just, and the world knows it. I mean, Iran knows it. The nuclear deal seems to have been negotiated very much in the spirit of an open awareness that the U.S. has fought too many wars in Muslim nations recently. And Basically, nothing is going to happen short of an overt act of war against us that is going to cause us to use force in that way anytime soon. So how do you think about
1: that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think credibility matters in foreign affairs, and I think countries, um, both our friends and our adversaries, look very closely at how we behave and whether or not we do fulfill our promises um, and if the president was not if the president was never serious about fulfilling a threat to use military action, then he should have never made that threat in the first place. And there's been a lot of talk now, I mean, I, I think Vox did a huge, you know, article where they were saying, well, actually the notion of credibility is just sort of a, a neocon term to, you know, scare people into fighting wars all the time. And they tried to, you know, prove this using quantifiable methods as if something like credibility could be quantified. I mean, there's no way you can quantify that. The only way to know is to ask, you know, ask Vladimir Putin, ask the mullahs in Iran, you know, how did you calibrate your behavior based upon what you perceived as the um, actions of the United States? Mm. Um, and certainly when you talk to our allies, you can. the, the, the French president, Hollande, has come out basically and said, Yes, the red line failing to fulfill that was a tragic mistake. You can ask, you know, the Taiwanese how do or the Japanese how do they think China responded to the failure to implement the red line? Mm. Um, so I think credibility matters. I mean, as to the second question about sort of the war weariness and what we should have done in Syria, I mean, I don't think anyone, not even John McCain, was ever calling for a commitment of ground troops um into Syria. I think what they were calling for, you know, 3 or 4 or 5 years ago was to use, you know, airstrikes on the Assad regime um to take out the air force, mm. to destroy the runways, to hit regime targets. Um and I think that, that that could have been done, I think it should have been done. Um I think every every negative consequence that Obama and his supporters have basically said would emerge from US military intervention has happened right? There's a vast humanitarian crisis. Half a million people are dead. We have the rise of ISIS, okay, of Sunni Islamic extremism. All these nasty, horrible things have happened with basically the U.S. doing nothing. So I take the view that we could have done something, and there's a good chance that the outcome would have been better than the mess that we're in now.
0: What do you think we should do now,
1: if anything? (laughs) I mean, I still don't understand why we're not supplying more arms to the opposition. Isn't the the ready
0: answer for that that we don't know who the opposition are? Or we or insofar as we know who they are, most of them are essentially indistinguishable from Al Qaeda.
1: I mean, I think that's that argument. I'm, I'm not an expert on Syria. I think that are, that that line is is used um, a little too indiscriminately. Um, and there are moderate Syrian rebels. Um, we know we know who they are. We know that they're there. Um, but this is basically—I I see the Syria policy, you have to understand, is a function and a consequence of the Iran policy. President Obama wanted to make a deal with Iran. He wanted to reorient America's position in the Middle East by basically getting us out of there. And so he wanted to create this deal. He wanted to stop— um, he wanted to end the sort of you know Cold War between the U.S. and Iran, and a consequence of doing that was leaving Syria alone, because the mm. Syrian regime Bashar al-Assad is a close ally of the Iranians, and I think it was basically an unspoken condition of the Iran deal that we would not do anything to unseat Bashar al-Assad. And there's been a lot of you know evidence to back this up over the past couple of years, um, and I that's basically why I. I think we've adopted this, this policy. And that fundamentally hinges upon a belief that the Iranians are rational and that we can, Mm -hmm. you know, make a deal with them in the same way that we made, you know, the new start treaty with the Soviets. And I just, I happen to disagree. I don't think that the mullahs are to be seen in the same way as Soviet communists were. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. I think they're Religious m- millenarians, hmm. um, and they—they they are just not the same um, for a variety of reasons. But
0: Iran, for me, is a pretty significant blind spot. I don't actually know what I think about the Iranian regime or the deal, quite frankly. I mean, I, I obviously I know what I think about millenarian <laughs> Shiism, right? And I know what I think about a regime that will allow one or more of its members to. Openly deny the Holocaust or promise to turn Israel into a sea of fire—the quote normalizing of that is troubling. But I've also heard, and I, I've never been to Iran, and I and I I know less about it than many other countries in the region. But I've certainly heard that the Iranians in general have lived long enough under theocracy, and they're, they're they just just given sort of the unique history there where it was you know fairly cosmopolitan, and then then got you know pulled back to the 7th century among the general population there is a yearning for freedom and and even secularism that actually doesn't exist in countries that that seem at least outwardly more benign at least with respect to US foreign policy and again the the pragmatics of the nuclear deal I've obviously heard both sides of of the story there. Yeah. I've heard Obama's side, and I've heard you know Netanyahu's side, and I actually don't I don't know which to believe. So I mean, if you, if you have any strong opinions in this area, I'd would love to hear them.
1: Well, I, I'm again I'm not an expert on the on the nuclear deal, so I'll I'll, I'll stay away from that. But um, certainly, with I mean, absolutely, the the Iranian people are more educated, they're more cosmopolitan, they're more pro American than any other population in the Middle East, and you hear this argument a lot, the only problem is that those people aren't the ones running the country. Mm. The people running the country are the, mil- the millenarian Shia extremists. Um, so it frankly doesn't, you know, when when, when you're talking about our, our posture, our policy towards Iran, I mean, you have to make a distinction between the Iranian people and the regime. And I feel like a lot of the Sort of Iran policy people in Washington who are constantly, you know, preaching for the Iranian position. They sort of fail to make that distinction. Um, yeah. And someone like, you know, someone like Reza Aslan, for instance, is a perfect example of this. Who is constantly making these ridiculous moral equivalences between, you know, the Iranian regime and the United States or the government of Israel. Mm. Um, and like, I get it. Like, you know, he's Persian and he has an affinity for his country and his culture, but like the guys running the country are a bunch of mass murdering religious extremists. Um, And like, we need to accept that and deal with that.
0: Yeah. To call them religious extremists, I don't, I, I can only assume that they are, most of them are, but I guess it's possible that they are, individuals are more pragmatic and cynical and merely using religion to, to manipulate people in a way that wouldn't be true of a classic Islamist or jihadist group that we might have to deal with, like al-Qaeda or ISIS, or it would be less true. And again, I, I just don't know. It's like, I don't know who was across the table when we're negotiating the nuclear deal, and whether it was reasonable to think that the people we're talking to don't actually believe in paradise and some glorious end to the world, and that they're actually just like communists, but they've Right. they've got long beards. And in certain cases, that it's important to acknowledge what an improvement that is over genuine religious lunacy, right? And that's the thing that makes the issue of jihadism so difficult. The people right. who can honestly say we love death more than you infidels love life and calling their bluff is just synonymous with setting the world on fire. That's the the biggest problem of all, in in my view, insofar as those ideas spread.
1: I, I agree, although I do think that there's a temptation to sort of, um, and you hear this again a lot from the Iran lobby types, to sort of, to, to rank the kind of Sunni jihadism um, as a greater threat than Iranian um, expansion of their hegemony. And mm. Just look at the Iranian role in the Middle East right now. I mean, they are fueling the civil war in Syria they are basically, um, once again, uh, controlling Lebanon through Hezbollah. Mm. Uh, they basically control Iraq through, uh, you know, the, 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 the Shia minority or the, 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 Shia population there, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, Iran is a, is a threat as well. And I think it's, it's, we have to view both of them, both the kind of the, 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 the Sunni jihadist extremists, you know, suicidal threat is obviously a big one, but, I, I don't think Iran is an ally, put it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think Iran is an ally in fighting it. I think if we embrace them as an ally, then we risk um, basically blowing up a sectarian war.
0: So what are you most worried about going forward in a Trump presidency when you talk about errors made on the world stage? what What's your
1: your number one concern? I am, yeah, I'm probably most concerned about some sort of diplomatic entente um, with Russia over Central and Eastern Europe. I think Ukraine is going to be basically sacrificed very early on. Mm. Um, you know, Trump said during the campaign, he went so far as even to say that he thought Crimea um, might be part of Russia. Um, and if we were to adopt that position, we'd be joining basically Zimbabwe and Cuba in recognizing um, what was obviously a blatant theft, really the first annexation of territory on the European continent since World War II. We would be basically blessing that. Mm. Um, and I'm also concerned about a potential conflict in the Baltic states, which are NATO members, but which, you know, Trump and his advisors repeatedly said, um, you know, might they basically intimated that, that those countries might be sacrificed um, because he, he he alleged that he, – he claimed that the United States would only defend its NATO allies if they paid up. And he was never really clear what he meant by that. If he meant um, that NATO countries need to pay the recommended 2 percent of their GDP on defense, which is sort of an unwritten or suggested rule of NATO, well, in that case, you know, Estonia pays 2 percent and Lithuania and Latvia are – Planning to pay two percent by 2018, but again, this, this sort of talk is really dangerous because the mere fact that he's even, you know, putting this on the table—that he's um, he's discussing, you know, sacred treaty obligations as basically business transactions. Mm. Um, It destroys the entire concept of deterrence. I mean, the reason why we never had World War III in Europe during the Cold War was because the Soviets really believed that we would go to nuclear war over West Berlin. Um, And they really believed that that we would stand by our treaty commitments. That's why we never had another war on the European continent with the Soviet Union. If the Russians get the impression that they can get away with something – um, under a Trump administration, then they'll probably try to do it, mm. um, and so that's that's what I'm most worried about.
0: It's interesting. I, I could just, you know, insofar as I feel like I have my finger on the pulse of the American people, I would bet that if you just put the question to people, under what circumstances would you vote in favor of the U.S. going to war with Russia? The number of circumstances on that list are. There might only be one, and defending the Baltic states is just nowhere in sight. And so it's these treaty obligations and a sense of history, I don't think, is influencing American psychology at the moment. And if we think in terms of rebooting our commitments at this moment, how important is it to American interests to defend some of those countries? the way we were during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. I got to think most of America would want to follow Trump down that path.
1: Well, this is what I worry about is that we've basically been conditioned by this campaign and also, frankly, by the Obama years into, you know, taking this um,
0: more restrained position. Also by having the sense of having won the Cold War and having a global contest against the communist empire recedes so far into our distant memory that that no one, none of that history seems relevant to the present moment.
1: Yeah, and I think actually a lack of historical understanding explains a lot of what we're going through right now. I mean, um, you know, the fact that so many millennials voted for a third party candidate, Mm. to me, indicates that they saw Trump not as like uh, a nation's dictator or authoritarian. They saw him as like a reality television show clown. And you know, it's maybe it's just because I've lived in Europe and have studied European history extensively that like when I saw Trump, I saw a, a, like an, an autocrat, you know, I, I, I got really bad sort of images in my mind of, 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 of history. Um, and I think that may be why we ended up with Trump. Um, was because, look, the United States, we've been blessed. We've never you know, been invaded by a foreign country in our lifetimes or certainly not in hundreds of years. I think since probably the War of 1812, we've never been occupied by a foreign country. Mm. Um, we've never lived under a totalitarian regime. And so we, I don't think, have the historical memory that you get from like a grandparent, right, who lived under Nazism or Soviet rule. We don't have that in this country. And so I think we were probably um, less immune to the temptations or, or sort of the, the, the wiles of, a, of an authoritarian demagogue, whereas a country like Germany, you know, Germans, when they look at Trump, they, they, they see him for what he is. Or they're much more afraid of him than, say, Americans are mm. because they have, a diff- they have a different historical understanding and context for, for a man like him.
0: What's your sense of international opinion of Trump and and what has happened in in the election here?
1: I mean, Europeans are absolutely terrified um, because they see a president who, again, has sort of openly renounced our NATO commitments, who was, you know, egging on Brexit. You know, one of the only leaders he attacked by name during the campaign was Angela Merkel, um, who's very popular in Germany. Which is sort of strange, right? Mm-hmm. That like one of the only one of the only leaders one of, that he would go after is one of our closest allies. Um, there's no sentimental, you know, attachment to Europe with Trump. There's no understanding for the values that underpin the transatlantic relationship. Mm. It's purely transactional. It's purely you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And if you just look at the balance sheet between Europe and America. It's true, like you know we we do spend the vast majority of the we we are, we are funding the vast majority of the NATO budget, and to a simpleton like Trump, you know he might not understand why that's in our benefit, why having a Europe that's whole free and at peace that's not fighting is actually good for america mm. it's good for our it's good for our economy, it's good for our soft power, it's good for the liberal world order that we've upheld for seventy years you know, I don't think he has any understanding of that. Um, and I think a lot of Americans don't have an understanding of it because frankly we we take it for granted that this thing, this sort of ineffable thing called the liberal world order exists. Cause we've never lived in a we've never lived in a world where it didn't exist. I fear that we're moving into a world where it might no longer exist.
0: Yeah. No, I, I confess I, I feel like I have been the the victim of that as well. I mean and again as, as much as I've recoiled at the the prospect of of a Trump presidency. The end of history thesis, though I probably always on the surface critical of it, did sort of upgrade the firmware in my brain a little bit, where I basically felt that we can take certain things for granted, right? And, And one of those things is that we will have a democracy that functions along basically liberal principles and there will be a commitment to more and more global integration and social order that will you know largely be anchored to american power for as long as you know we're alive and it does really seem like a moment where much of that can be called into question it's not that we are living through the weimar years here but it's it's just it would have been previously unimaginable to think that somebody who spoke like Trump and thought like Trump could become president, and I, I really do do see this moment from you know through European eyes to some degree. Well,
1: yeah, I've 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 written this, and I don't I don't mean to sound hyperbolic, but it's true. I um, witnessing the Trump phenomenon has taught me more about the 1930s than any book I've read or lecture I attended mm. in college, and just seeing the you know so many ostensibly rational people fall so easily for a rank demagogue and con man and liar. Um, That has been the most appalling thing. And, you know, in the same way that when I saw these videos of, you know, students on campuses, you know, screaming and yelling about Halloween costumes Mm -hmm. or that, that to me sort of explained the mob mentality And sort of like, I could understand how something like Kristallnacht could happen, you know, just seeing all these, these, you know, again, kids at elite schools just behave like they were part of a a Maoist, Mm -hmm. you know, struggle session. Again, like seeing this Trump phenomenon, um, just sort of contextualized how a demagogue can come to power in an advanced, you know, Western democratic country.
0: You can imagine someone far scarier than Trump achieving this in the future. Yeah, it sort of broke the seal on yeah on the worst possible president arriving. Because I mean, Trump is so to someone like me, he's so obviously unqualified. He just sticks his feet in his mouth. Really, as kind of a, as a method of communication, right? It's like it's it's not even there's just there's nothing compelling about the guy. But just imagine someone who could speak like Christopher Hitchens, but who was also just as lacking ethically and had no moral center, who was just as selfish and just as committed to really only himself, or worse, one who, one who was actually ideological in ways that he could successfully conceal up to the moment he assumed power. The sky's the limit at this moment if you can elect someone like Trump.
1: No, he did. He really, um, he broke a lot of our... Traditions, I would say, or our um our habits, our standards. And I feel like, you know, everything is now fair game. You know, getting up and suggesting that your supporters should assassinate your opponent. Yeah. yeah. Um, people forget that, right? Uh he he did that. Um, doubting the integrity of the election results. Um, the sort of like banana republic behavior. And what's what was worse about it to me was was not just that he said it, but that people who who are in positions of responsibility and influence basically said that it was okay. Yeah. At the end of the day, Paul, at the end of the day, Paul Ryan, who's supposed to be the adult in the room, endorsed Donald Trump, and the same can be said for you know countless Republican officials up and down the line across the country, um, people on television. You know, um like why didn't Henry Kissinger speak out? Why didn't George Schultz, you know, these statesmen? Why didn't they speak out? and
0: And how does someone recover reputationally? I mean, someone like ted cruz or or now mitt Romney i don't I don't know if mitt, if the other shoe has dropped yeah. yet, and Mitt Romney has said anything positive about Trump after their meeting. but these were guys who I mean, obviously, I have my differences with Cruz yeah. and Romney, but these were guys who took a strong, principled position against him early, and they said, he is a, I think Cruz called him a, a an amoral man and a pathological liar. And, and both said he was totally unqualified, dangerously unqualified to assume the presidency. How do you walk that back and not have that be some kind of obvious self-immolation? Right. I mean, like, how does anyone, how do you accept yourself? And like, unless you, unless you have reasons, right. Unless you have an argument, like, well, listen, I had, been told Trump said one thing, but when I looked into it, he didn't say that thing. So I was lied to, right? I was deceived. No, there's no argument. There's just a change of posture that is emotionally, psychologically, ethically, intellectually inexplicable, and yet with a brave face that you just kind of go forward and press ahead, and now you're, in Cruz's case, working the phone banks trying to get Trump elected. It's just the most craven acquiescence to somebody else's growing power. It's, it's insane.
1: Well, what I worry about, Sam, is that people like you and me who actually care about these things are going to be in the minority and that in a couple of years people are just going to forget. Right. I mean, if this country elected Donald Trump with all his manifest, you know, flip flops and lies and cons and swindles, then why would they care about someone like Ted Cruz or you know whoever else mm-hmm. or or yeah. Marco Rubio Marco Rubio was was the most devastating in my opinion because he's the guy who said correctly in my opinion that we cannot trust this man with the nuclear codes right and then he endorsed him for president why because Hillary Clinton's education plan was so offensive to him i mean it's absurd so but i fear that like i'm just like shouting into the wilderness here and that eventually you know us us sort of never trump people are going to be in this minority and that, you know, most Republicans are, aren't, aren't, aren't going to care. And it's, it's like the death of shame, almost. And there's no consequences for this.
0: We might want to rewatch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, because that, it feels <laughs> like that moment. Well, listen, Jamie, it's been great to talk to you. We've covered a lot, and it's great to get your voice on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Is there anything that you want people to pay attention to going forward? First, give your, your relevant Twitter address and, and website, yeah. and, and I'll have those linked on my blog. But is there anything you think people should read or think about or do going forward?
1: Well, they should certainly uh, look for my book, The End of Europe, coming out in March from Yale University Press. And I'll, oh, great. I'll have a link for that. Did you go to Yale? I did go to Yale. Yeah. Class of 2006. Um, and to read, what to read? You know, I would read um, Vaslav Havel. Who's probably my favorite um, moral philosopher, political figure in 20th century history? Um, Wh- which book would you recommend? Um, any of his collection, any of his collection of essays. Um, but basically, his um, his mantra was was this term, living in truth. And and he and he wrote about living in Czechoslovakia, communist country where people were made to lie all the time about everything and how important it was to live in truth and to be truthful to oneself and and to one's neighbors and um that's i think if there's a theme perhaps of our conversation today it's the importance of i think that principle
2: mm. when there's
1: just so much so much lies and false information and and pressure basically to just go along to get along um just how important it is to you know to to think for yourself um and that's that's Probably what I would recommend to your, to your listeners.
0: Nice. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure to think for ourselves together, and I look forward to the next time we, we do it, because needless to say, the problems we've been talking about are not going away anytime soon. No,
1: they're not. Thank you, sir. Take care, Jamie.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.